I'm going to incorporate the reading of the scripture into the body of the sermon today, and so we won't read it at the outset, but we will in just a few moments. So you can keep your Bibles handy. When Jesus was born at Bethlehem of Judea, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. The question they asked was, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Then before his birth, or back before his birth, the angel had come to Mary, and she had said concerning Jesus, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Years later, when Jesus begins his ministry, Philip goes to get his brother Nathaniel, you remember, brings Nathaniel to Jesus. Nathaniel, in a burst of enthusiasm, says to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Then through his ministry, Jesus spoke again and again of the kingdom of God and numerous times said it was his kingdom. In addition, he rides on Palm Sunday into Jerusalem as a king. In addition to that, he's accused by his enemies of forbidding tribute to Caesar on the grounds that he claims to be the true king. And when Pilate tests him on this, he says, you say that I am. I am a king. And then the early church confessed and believed that when Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended to the right hand of Father and took his seat on the throne and reigns today as king until, 1 Corinthians 15 says, he puts all his enemies under his feet. And someday, perhaps very soon, he will come again and make manifest to the whole world that he is king over all rulers and every knee will bow and confess that he is king of kings and lord of lords. According to Acts chapter 2 verse 30, God had made an oath to David and said, I will put on your throne one of your descendants who will rule forever. Jesus is presented as the fulfillment of that promise. And one day he's going to bring that fulfillment to its consummation as he extends his reign out of the silence of heaven into the loud crack of his second coming and the world will be his kingdom. Now, since he is going to reign forever, that brings to an end the long succession of kings in Israel that had begun with Saul. But how did that line of kings, which Jesus so significantly fulfills, ever get started in the first place? There was a thousand years of Jewish history before there was any kingdom in Israel at all. How did it come about that Israel shifted from a loose confederation of tribes into a unified kingdom? That's what I want us to try to answer this morning. And in answering it, from a text in 1 Samuel 12, there are four lessons that we will really benefit from, I think. 
Now let me set the stage here and bring us to where we are in this redemptive history that we're looking at in these weeks. God had brought the people out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the promised land. The generation of Joshua had died. And as we noted last week, the new generation that rose up didn't know the Lord and had forgotten the things that he had done and served the Baals and did what was evil in the sight of God. And for 300 years, this period called the period of the judges, Israel's life was just a miserable roller coaster of plummet into sin and degradation and oppression by the enemies humbling themselves and crying out to God, help us, deliver us. God sends a judge, lifts them up to deliverance, prosperity. Then they forget God again, plummet back down into sin. Enemies oppress them. They cry out to the Lord and up and down they go for 300 years. And then along comes Samuel, the last judge and a prophet, kind of a bridge person between two eras. And Samuel anoints Saul, the first king over all of Israel. And then you know the rest of the kingdom history pretty simply, I think. Saul's son was David, the greatest king of all. David's son was Solomon, the wise king. Solomon's sons divided the kingdom. Then there was the north, and then there was the south. And two lines of kings emerged. And they kept on in succession until after years of rejecting the prophetic word, God sent Assyria and took the northern kingdom into captivity in 721 B.C. And he sent Babylon against the southern kingdom and took them into captivity in 586 B.C. And that was the end for the time being of the nation Israel. That means now, as we focus on the origin of the kingdom, that the key is going to be found in Samuel and his ministry, and specifically in this text to which I'd like you to turn. 1 Samuel 12, verses 6 through 25, and we'll read that together and then base the rest of our comments on this text. 1 Samuel 12, verses 6 through 25. Now, the context is that Samuel is giving a speech at the inauguration of Saul. We'll pick it up at verse 6, even though his speech begins at verse 1. Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the saving deeds of the Lord which he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought forth your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Jabin, king of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies and we will serve thee. And the Lord sent Jerubbaal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel 
and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but we will have a king to reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen. For whom you have asked. Behold the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and hearken to his voice. And not rebel against his commandment. The commandment of the Lord. And if both you and your king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. It will be well. But if you will not hearken to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against his commandment, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Fear not. You have done all this evil, yet Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside after vain things which cannot profit or save, for they are vain. For the Lord will not cast away his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Samuel's speech now is given at Gilgal at the inauguration of Saul. We see that from chapter 11, verse 15. Samuel knows that his own leadership as judge is being replaced by the leadership of Saul, the king. Verses 1 to 6 have the atmosphere of retirement about them. I am old and gray, he says. If anyone has a charge against me, bring it forth. Now, I think when he says that, what he's doing is washing his hands of this choice to have a king. He's saying, I have not done anything in my whole reign to drive you to reject me and God to have a king like the other nations. It's a choice on your own. I'm not responsible. If there's anything I've done, show me. That's the essence of verses 1 to 6. He lays down the mantle of judge, but not the mantle of prophecy for he's got a message now he's going to still talk to this people he loves this people he says at the end he's going to pray for them to his dying day and he does so the first thing that he has to say to them in verses six to eight is to remind them of 
the great deeds God has done in the past. That's the way preachers have always done in Israel and ought to do today. Look what God did. Stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the saving deeds of the Lord which he performed for you and your fathers. How do you plead with people concerning the past? You can't change the past. You can only change the future. So evidently what he means by pleading with the people concerning these past things is this. I plead with you to recognize how you should behave in the future in view of what God has done for you in the past. I urge you to act in the future like a people who believe that God takes care of you just like He took care of the people in the past. That's in fact what He does in verse 24 as He closes, isn't it? He says, Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart in the future. For... Consider what great things He has done for you in the past. That's the, that's the way the Christian life works as well, isn't it? We know the God that we count on tomorrow because we've seen what He has done for us yesterday. But in verse 9, Samuel points out that the people are not good students of their own history. The first line there in verse 9 They forgot the Lord, their God. Amazing to us, and yet every one of us knows what that is. How many times have I, after experiencing a great blessing, said, God, if I ever fail to trust you after this. And in a week, he forgot me. Just the way we are. It's a terrible thing. The result of protracted disobedience, notice in verse 9, is God sold his people into the hands of the enemies. Sisera, Philistines, the Moabites. But one of the purposes of historical judgment is God's will to jar people awake so that they will return to Him who is their hope and their joy and not go after vain things. Now, verses 10 and 11 illustrate how this happened repeatedly in the time of the judges. The people cry out and admit We have forsaken the Lord. Oh, deliver us out of the hand of our enemies. And we'll serve you. And God answers the people again and again with judges. And Samuel mentions four of them. Jerubal, that's another name for Gideon. Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel himself, the final judge. At last, after all this period, a time of peace comes in the time of Samuel. But peace is only temporary. There appears on the horizon Nahash, king of the Ammonites. And the people see the threat, and what do they do? They say this in a very interesting sentence. No! But we will have a king over us like the other nations. Now, what do you suppose they meant? No! No what? No to whom? Turn back to chapter 8. In chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, we find the actual instance of where the people rebelled and cried out for a king. Chapter 12 is a report and an interpretation of what happened in chapter 8. Look at verses 4 to 7. I think these verses show what they were saying no to. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. 
said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to govern us like all the nations. But this displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to govern us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Hearken to the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So I think when Israel said, No, but we will have a king over us, they were saying no to God as their king. We don't want just to have God as king over us anymore with charismatic rulers popping up here and there to lead us in battle. We want some stability here. We want a king so he can be like the other nations. No to God. No to so much dependence on Him in battle. No to being unlike the other nations. Now that was a great evil according to verse 17 of chapter 12. A great evil. It says, Their wickedness is great in the sight of the Lord because they asked for themselves a king. And then in verse 19, they admit it. They say, We have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. Now, if we ended the story right there and you wrote the rest of it, I wonder how it would end. Here's the way God ends the story or begins the new chapter. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. And a whole new phase of Israel's history begins. Even though there was a great King David, a man after God's own heart, a great reformer like Josiah, the final and ultimate King Jesus, the Son of God, nevertheless, that line of kings had an evil beginning in sin. And I think there are lots of lessons in that. And I want to mention four now in conclusion. One at a time. First lesson, the way we seek to have something may be wrong when the thing itself is not wrong. I don't think that having a king was in itself wrong in Israel. If that king had been looked upon as a lowly agent of God rather than a replacement for God, if he had been sought to provide spiritual unity among the twelve tribes rather than worldly unity with the nations, worldly similarity to the nations, if he had been viewed as a kind of temporary and imperfect substitute until God himself should come and take up the reins of government on the earth, if they had proceeded out of faith and loyalty. I don't think it would have been wrong to have a king. The way God affirmed the kingdom again and again, sent His own Son to fill that office. It was the way Israel sought that king. It was the motive behind her desire for a king. And therefore, Jesus wasn't the first one to teach, was He, that right and wrong cannot be simply identified with an act, but must always take into account 
the motive and the spirit in which an act is done. Just as important as the act is the way it's done. Many, many good things are made very evil because they are done not from faith, not with a humble reliance on the Lord, and not with a spirit of love. We need to think that way, don't we? Don't think of your ethics and your right and wrong just in terms of a list of acts to avoid or to do. Add to that list the spirit in which it's done. Otherwise, that whole list of good things which you aim to do is corrupted, just like these people were evil to originate a good line of kings. That's the first lesson. Here's the second one. We learn that the sovereign purposes of God for His people will not be frustrated even by the sins of those people. Now, this is really interesting. Way back in Deuteronomy, Moses' day, we read in chapter 17, verse 14 and 15, God foresaw they were going to do this. He not only predicted that they were going to ask for a king, He told them when they did it, what kind of a king to ask for. Listen to what He said through Moses. When you come to the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around about me, you shall surely set a king over you him whom the Lord your God shall choose, one from among your brethren, you shall set as king over you. Three hundred years earlier, that's said through Moses. The rise of the kingdom, evil though it was, was no surprise to God. He had planned for it and how to contain it long ago. Yet it came about through sin. Just the same way the crucifixion of Jesus came about through sin and yet was predicted and ordained by God long before. It was evil for the people to want that king, yet God planned for that event. God is somewhat like a fullback. This is a helpful way for me to see what's going on here. A really skilled fullback, big and powerful who cuts through that opening in the line and he aims to hit that linebacker. There's no way to avoid it, but he aims to hit that linebacker in such a way that he spins off into the open and uses his opposition to gain the goal. God is doing that all the time. And there is a great comfort in viewing God as an unstoppable fullback who when he smashes up against opposition, will always roll off into victory and turn the smash itself as a kick-out into freedom so that he can scoot down the sideline exactly where he wants to be all the time. My confidence in the sovereignty of God is the most steadying thing in my life. It takes away the chicken little syndrome. 
You never have to run around saying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. It's not falling. God's mighty hands are always under the sky. And whatever happens, even your mistakes, God will turn those for the achievement of His gracious and glorious purposes. It takes away the cosmic jitters. I wonder if people, as they face decisions in life, who seem to just think everything hangs on this decision, just don't know that whichever way you go in that decision, God can turn it for good. It takes away the cosmic jitters. You still might have the butterflies, but you won't be really anxious. Here's the third lesson, and they tie together very closely. If the plight... Now, I know this applies to some of you in this room, and this is for you. This is good news. If the plight in which you find yourself is irreversible, and it was brought about by your own sin. And now you feel paralyzed by guilt and despair. You don't need to be. Look at what happens here in 1 Samuel 12. This is beautiful and full of grace. What the people do when they've been confronted with their evil, a great evil, it says, is they acknowledge their wickedness in verse 19. They humble themselves deeply for their sin and then listen to what Samuel says in verse 20. Fear not. Sound like the angels at Christmas. Fear not. You have done all this evil but do not turn aside from following the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn after vain things which cannot profit or save, for they are vain. There are too many people who have been lost because they have given up too soon on the grace of God. They have said, there's no hope for me. God isn't going to forgive that. I can't get that off my back. Even if he could, it is so heavy on me, I can't begin to get it to the cross. I can't move. I am so paralyzed by guilt and despondency. The message of 1 Samuel 12 to people like that is, don't let it keep you back. Roll out from under it. God will lift it off your back. The word is for people who think that to my whole life of sin, I have added this one final great wickedness and it's all over. That's the language of 1 Samuel 12. And Samuel's word is, it ain't all over if you will serve the Lord your God with all your heart and not turn again to vain things. If you turn from your evil way and serve the Lord, there is forgiveness. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And one final lesson to draw us to a close. What basis, what basis of assurance does Samuel give to the people who are repenting? 
I mean, it's not easy to believe that God can forgive such a thing as an assault on His kingship. No, we don't want you as king. And then to have thunder come from heaven and say, that is a great wickedness. And they back off and say, we have done a great wickedness. And Samuel just comes along and says, fear not. Press on with the Lord. They need some assurance. They need some foundation. And here it is in verse 22. The Lord will not cast away His people for His great name's sake. That's the foundation, isn't it? That's the ultimate basis of all God's mercy. God's unswerving commitment always to act on behalf of His own name. And therefore, if we come to God and give up our desire to make a name for ourselves and just lean over on His name, He won't ever let you fall. Those who lean on the name of Jesus and take the name to themselves, He'll work for them with all His might. He will not let His name be dishonored. And that's why the last and final assurance that can be given is... For my great namesake, I will not cast you away. What a rock. When everything else is shaking. And so my petition to all of you is come. Accept it. It's there. Free. No matter what boulder of wickedness has been erected by you in the way. Jesus can push it aside.